I'm really glad to be here. Let's pray. You join me. Father, I am truly honored by this opportunity tonight to testify to speak of your goodness, um, your unfailing love to us, even in the times that seem hard and difficult and when it's difficult to see how you are working. We thank you for this beautiful gift in scripture that you've given us in the book of Ruth, and we ask that you would open our eyes, um, open our hearts, so that what each of us needs, we hear from your spirit tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm willing to bet that most of our kids know at least this story by the time they're five. What do we have tonight? Third grade and up? Definitely by the time they're in third grade. Something like this. Having lost her male guardian, a young woman finds herself in sudden poverty, and she has to take the role of a servant, working really hard night and day. Nevertheless, she remains patient, loyal, and diligent. This virtue is rewarded on the night of a great festival, the biggest party of the season. With the help of a wise, older mother figure, she dresses to the nines, slips into the festivities, where she encounters and makes a very good impression on the most eligible bachelor of all. But that's too easy, right? The plot can't end there. It has to be a little bit more complicated. So after she leaves, Mr. Eligible has to take the initiative. He's got to pursue her a little, overcome some obstacles. A shoe is involved before he can finally claim her as his bride. And in the end, as all good fairy tales do, the good are rewarded, the evil are punished, and something about happily ever after, right? Okay, kids, cohort, you're here. What was that? Cinderella, right. What was, I couldn't hear what she said. <laughs> From down there, a little voice said. And if you said, it's the story of Ruth, you did you, Emma? It would also be right. <laughs> the story of Ruth does read a little bit like that rags to riches story that we all love, right? It's charming, it's relatable, it has a happy ending. Unlike some other stories from that time of the judges, we've been reading about some of those, right? Most of which major in strange characters and epic military maneuvers. The scale of this is very human. It's like one family, and its outlook is optimistic. The characters are admirable. It's got a good, well-paced plot. Although I have to tell you, there's a lot we miss in translation. It still makes a really good read, especially if, like we did with Immerse, you get to sit down and just kind of do it in one sitting. And I hope some of you got to do that this fall as we went through. But fairy tales are teaching stories. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but they tend to have a pretty tight moral. They tell us what society rewards and what it punishes. And conditioned as we are to those, it's not surprising we easily fall into that trap when we read scripture. It's really easy to take Bible stories and hear them as good examples. You know, uh, be like Ruth, loyal, be generous, like Boaz. But as appealing as they are, those characters, as we'll see, are still imperfect, and ultimately, they're not the heroes of this story. Now, I fell in love with the book of Ruth. Actually, it was after I named my daughter, but... Um, after a summer slaving in uh, intensive Hebrew, sounds like a fun way to spend your summer, right? But it was the first Old Testament text we got to read with our newfound knowledge. And it's a really good choice for that because it, it really rewards uh, reading in the original language. This author, I'm here to tell you, loves telling a good story and loves getting across 
their point through wordplay and characterization, a little bit of dramatic suspense, some irony. And it's precisely in such details that the theology of Ruth comes through. Someone who will not be named, while we were reading it in Immerse, said, it's a nice book, but is there really any theology in Ruth? So we're going to find it. That's what we're here for tonight. Before we dive in, so we can do this, I'm going to teach you four Hebrew words, okay? You get to repeat after me. First is kala. Kala. Kala is Hebrew for a bride. Uh, still is, if you look at Jewish literature about marriage. It's, it's, it's how to be a good kala. But it's also daughter-in-law. It's literally the same word. It has both meanings depending on context. Here's another one for you. Gibor hayil. Gibor hayil. Okay, kids, you got to say that one like this. Gibor hayil. Because Gibor hayil is a mighty man, like a warrior. Like David and his mighty men, those are his, you know, giborim hayil, right? All right, Goel. Goel. Goel is just one who redeems. Now, even that's kind of a churchy word. We don't redeem very many things besides maybe coupons today. Um, so bless his heart, Keith Green gave us that great song. But I think a lot of us still lack like a context for what that means. We're going to put some flesh on those bones tonight. And if you don't remember any of that, which is fine, by the end we're done, you'll remember this one. Hesed. Hesed. Hesed is an incredibly important word in the Old Testament that we sometimes miss because it's translated differently in different places. Sometimes it's called mercy, and other times, loving kindness. One scholar says that on the human level, Hesed is lovingly generous human behavior at the most intimate of levels. That's good, because Hesed is fundamentally relational. It's this loyal, generous, obligation-keeping love. Love that just stays. I hope to show you that the hero of the book of Ruth is God's chesed, his faithful love and gracious provision. And I want to show you how that chesed in this book develops three important aspects. I'll give you the quick preview, okay? The first is, it's subtle and often hidden from view. You'll find that the author's voice in this story is very restrained. You know that narrative voice that tells you like, and he did not do well, but he followed in all the sins of his ancestor. You know, the up, the up vote, down vote voice. That's practically absent in Ruth. We'll often find that it's the characters who get to tell us what's happening to them and actually interpret what it means. God's chesed is limitless and persistent. It overcomes all obstacles and chooses the most unlikely characters to bless. And then the third one, kind of tied to the subtlety, it works both directly and through human agents. Humans get to be a part of God's mercy when they choose, for instance, loyal love over fulfilling social obligations, a generous interpretation of the law over rigid legalism, or responsibilities to others over their personal gain. Those who hesitate just get left out of this opportunity to be part of the story. So we're ready. Let's walk through on a whirlwind tour of the book of Ruth. You might want to follow along in your Bible where it starts on page 263, but I'm not going to read the whole thing because we would never get out of here in time, and I have a kid downstairs too. Um, I'm going to highlight portions as we go along, kind of paraphrase others. 
Buckle up. In the first chapter, we meet the family of an Israelite named Elimelech. This is that dark ages time in Israel where everyone like did what was right in his own eyes and there's some crazy stuff going on. In this case, there's a famine in their hometown of Bethlehem. So they leave Bethlehem, they give up basically, they go to neighboring Moab where apparently the eating is better. Ironically, Bethlehem is the house of bread, so there's no bread in the house of bread. And so they stay in Moab for a while. They kind of settle there. And while they're there, Elimelech dies. And their sons take local girls as wives. Not too surprising. Consider for a moment, even at this point, how much loss Naomi, Elimelech's widow, has sustained. The loss of home, her land, her husband, and now to some extent, even her identity. Because as we all know, when you start to marry into the local culture, that's that slippery slope to assimilation. In fact, that's why Deuteronomy weighs in pretty heavily, like, do not marry a Moabite. Your offspring will not be welcome in Israel to the 10th generation. But as if that wasn't enough. Now adding sorrow to sorrow, both of Naomi's sons die. To appreciate the gravity of her situation, you have to grasp what it would mean to be a woman embedded in this really patriarchal culture. The book assumes that. I'm not saying it endorses it, but it assumes it. And to understand the story, we'll have to understand what that would mean. You're valued ex almost exclusively for the children you could produce. And not just children, but sons. Because daughters are going to do the same story. They're going to go to someone else's house to reproduce the same value. Sons might stay with you bring honor to you, provide for you in your old age. So Naomi has literally nothing. No husband, no sons, and as she reminds the girls, she's really too old to start over. Now speaking of those girls, she does have two daughters-in-law, two Kala, who ironically aren't brides anymore. But there's still a little bit of hope for them because they're young, and they could be. And so that's what Naomi decides would be best. She's going to go back to Bethlehem. There's nothing for me here. But you, you guys should go home. Go to your mother's household. Start over. Marry again. Have some children. There's still a good life ahead for you. And one of her daughters-in-law very sensibly says, sure, that makes sense. Goodbye, good luck, and heads home. But Ruth, Ruth makes such an absolutely radical choice for a woman in this position. Because everything in her culture tells her that to be an unmarried, childless woman renders her a complete failure. You have not measured up. And she's got an opportunity still to walk that path. But Ruth chooses to cling or cleave. It is totally a marriage word. To her mother-in-law, this woman that she's only related to via two intermediary men, right? and to stay with her. So in those famously quotable words, she says, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, there I will die and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. That's some strong language. So young people, are you listening? Your culture may say you're valuable if you're attractive, you're valuable if you're smart or you're thin or you have enough followers on social media. 
Here's Ruth. She says, no, I'm going to put my weight down on what really matters, my relationships and this search for what is meaningful in life. Now, I put it that way because it's true that we don't entirely know what Ruth thinks about God at this point. Her covenantal language talks about God, but is it that she really is really intrigued and interested by this God of Israel, or would she just follow whatever God Naomi happens to worship? It's kind of ambiguous. We're not yet completely sure. Naomi Naomi sees it, she gives up. Okay, come along. But you know, in her depth of grief, it doesn't really make much difference to her. She says to the women of Bethlehem, don't call me Naomi. You know, that means pleasant, delightful. No, no, call me Mara. Mara means bitter, because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. If you've added up enough losses in life, you might understand where Naomi finds herself. Because she's gone out with a family, and she came back, as she says, empty-handed. She actually says that God has acted... It says harshly, but like the root of that is just the basic word for evil. God has acted evilly towards me. He's done me wrong. In this bitterness, she doesn't really see the gift she's already received in Ruth's loyal love. That doesn't really register. So there's the setup. Ruth and Naomi are, count them, poor. Women, not just women, but childless widows. One is a foreigner, racially and ethnically, And the other is, you know, actively doubting God's goodness. It's just about as outsider as you could be, according to the typical standards by which Hebrew culture measured blessing, like children and land and wealth. So chapter 2 hits, enter Boaz. I'll read a bit. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Lovely bit of foreshadowing there. Naomi said, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and entered a field, began to glean behind the harvesters, and as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Did you catch that he's from the clan of Elimelech? I think that might be important. Now, how Boaz is introduced here, a man of standing, it says he's a gibor hayil. He's a mighty warrior, but that doesn't fit very well outside of an army military context. So we would say that he's a man of resources or um, of wealth, of standing. He's eminent and outstanding in his community. In other words, he is everything Ruth and Naomi are lacking. And let's not slide too quickly over verse 3. It's almost the crux of the book in some ways. It just says, as it happened, as it turned out, Ruth ended up in this field belonging to Boaz. That is so characteristic of the subtlety of this author. God is most present in some ways, specifically where he's not even mentioned. So if you want to read the book of Ruth literally, you're going to have to read that statement kind of non-literally as almost the opposite of what it says. It didn't just happen that Ruth ended up there. In apparent absence, God is very much working behind the scenes. Let's see. I want to tell you a story. I think, yeah, okay, I have two minutes. 
This comes from Lydia's cancer treatment a few years back, and a lot of you walked with us through that, but there are some new faces here, so I feel like I need to keep telling these stories. About 10 days after she was diagnosed, Lydia ended up in the intensive care unit on a ventilator. And this tumor that she had in her abdomen was so big, it was creating all this pressure, and she really couldn't breathe. And as if that wasn't bad enough, uh, we, I got woken up at 5 a.m., and they said, well, now it looks like she's actively bleeding out. We have to do something about this now. And she was already very fragile. Um, in fact, we practically said, is this futile care? Like, do, we, do you really uh, encourage us to do this? They said, yeah, yeah, it's worth a try. So this is what the doctors came up with. They would do an interventional radiology procedure. They would go in through a blood vessel in her leg with a catheter, with dye to visualize her blood vessels. Uh, they would go looking for these arteries, these bleeders that were, were filling her belly with blood. Um, so they went, this is, this is the kind of procedure that would not be so uncommon on adults. In cardiology, something like that, you might go after a, a blocked artery. But there aren't a lot of reasons to do this on kids. We said, okay, if you think that's what you should do, go for it. So they take her back. It took a long time, let's tell you. But we talked to the doctor after this procedure. And it turned out he was an older fellow who had just recently come to Seattle Children's Hospital after decades working in another major health system in Seattle, where he said, oh, yeah, I, I do this thing all the time, just on grown-ups. Man, those blood vessels are tiny. <laughs> That's what impressed him. Her little two-year-old arteries were so small. As it, as it turned out, as it turned out, right, God's provision for us in that incredibly scary moment was it just the right person was on call that Sunday morning with just the right skills for what we needed. And you'll never tell me that that wasn't one of the ways God answered all of your prayers and ours and everybody else's. That's precisely how things are working out here for Ruth. As the scene develops, there's Boaz who inquires and finds out who Ruth is and how admirably she's been conducting herself how she gleans, which is following a custom that the law prescribes to provide for poor people. They get to go behind the harvesters and pick up the grain that's left behind. And Boaz invites Ruth to stay in his field. He's impressed with her. In fact, he promises, I've told my servants not to harm you, and you can even come and drink from our water. And I'll read. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground, and she asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. What I want you to notice here is the way that each of them interprets for us the story so far. So for Ruth, the story often calls her Ruth the Moabitess, in case you forgot, right? But this is the only time in the entire story that she's called this word foreigner. That's what she feels herself to be in this new place, her not yet real home. 
But Boaz reflects differently on her actions. Whereas in chapter one, we saw her motives were kind of opaque. Like, what, why does she want to do this? Boaz interprets her loyalty to Naomi as placing yourself under the wings of the God of Israel. Beautiful picture for protection and defense, trustingly assuming that position of shelter. And he expresses his confidence that God's blessing will follow, which Ruth finds so encouraging. After the conversation, Boaz works to arrange things even more for her welfare, like, hey, drop a little extra grain for her so she can glean safely, bring home enough. And when Ruth tells Naomi, Naomi responds, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. He, Boaz, or he, Yahweh, kind of could go either way there. But she added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. He is our goel. A redeemer could refer to either of two things. They're kind of conflated in Ruth. One was the idea that if an Israelite came into dire poverty and had to sell like, themselves into slavery, or what's almost as bad, sell their family plot of land, a close relative had the right to come along and redeem them back within a particular amount of time. The other reference could be to this custom that we find kind of odd, but it's all over the Old Testament, called leveret marriage, where if a young man dies with no children, but he has a brother, his brother is not only allowed, but obligated to take his widow for a wife in order to have children who will inherit the dead man's inheritance and name, in order to continue the family line as closely as possible, and to provide protection for the widow. We'll see in a second, it looks like Naomi has mostly the latter in mind, but this is definitely a hopeful development. So we see Naomi's bitterness has begun to thaw, and things continue this way throughout the harvest. Ruth gleans, she brings home enough, and she stays or dwells. There's that staying faithful word with her mother-in-law. Brings us to chapter 3. The harvest is now wrapping up. It's threshing time. You put all the grain in a pile, and you beat it, and you let the chaff blow away. Right? Naomi observes that Boaz has been very kind to Ruth, but also nothing more is happening. So she gives Ruth some instructions. This is 3.1. My daughter... I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So wash, put on some perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, and then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you were there until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he is lying, and then go, uncover his feet, and lie down, he will tell you what to do. Okay, incidentally, this is where moralistic readings of Ruth really start to falter, right? Be like Ruth, be loyal and kind, good. Be like Ruth, be patient and hardworking, still good. Be like Ruth, to catch a man, dress in your best clothes, make sure he has a good meal, catch him late at night, and sneak up to where he is sleeping, and you know, yeah, no. <laughs> we know that's not what's going on here. There's actually a ton of debate over what this term, uncover the feet, might mean. Um, there's no question that in Hebrew, the word feet can be used euphemistically for everything below the waist. 
Certainly it seems like Naomi might be embracing that kind of sketchy, but there's definite precedent for women in Hebrew scriptures who just take matters into their own hands when they find themselves left childless and without options. A child at any cost? For instance, there's the origin story of the nation of Moab, of which Ruth is a member, in which after the destruction of Sodom, Lot's daughters decide there's no choice for them but incest if they want to bear any children. And also in Genesis, but this time firmly in the, Israel, in the lineage of Israel, we have Tamar. That's the widowed daughter-in-law of Judah. And Judah conspicuously shirks his responsibility to make sure that after one of his sons has died, another will marry her and provide this right for her to have children in the dead man's name. So Tamar, okay, I got this. She dresses up as a prostitute. She seduces him, gets pregnant, and cleverly guarantees that when all this is exposed, she will have proof of the identity of the father. Shocking as the story is, in the end, Judah says, she was more righteous than I. Just kind of something to let sink in. And it's through that son, Tamar's son, Perez, that Judah's lineage is followed. Okay, so is that what Naomi has in mind? If Ruth were to get pregnant, she thinks maybe that would force Boaz's hand, so he'd have to marry her. Up to this point in the narrative, the reader is certainly free to think so. And the reader who knows their Hebrew scripture really might. And so Ruth says, I'll do it. And she sneaks or slips down to this threshing floor. It's an open-air area where he might sleep near his grain so nobody comes and steals it. And it's a party. It's harvest time. They've had a good meal. They've had some things to drink. Boaz is in a good mood when he goes to bed. She slips in, uncovers his feet, and lies down. And literally until the last word of that sentence, we're still on pins and needles not knowing what is really going on here. Because if it said she were to lie down with him, that would mean to know in the biblical sense, right? But it doesn't. It stops right there. So curiously, Ruth either misunderstands Naomi's instructions, or maybe something went awry in the plan. Was she supposed to let him actually fall asleep, or was she supposed to talk to him first? Or maybe... She deliberately takes Naomi's instructions in this ludicrously literal way because she doesn't really want to participate in an unethical, deceptive scheme to ensnare him. But in any case, it sure seems like she's lying down at his feet. And if anyone tells you in a commentary that apparently this was the customary way in rural Israel to ask a man to marry you, you should put that commentary right back on the shelf and let it turn yellow where it belongs. Because that kind of taming of the scriptural story just won't do. We can't make it fit what we think it should be. We've got to figure out what it is in all that kind of mystery and, yes, tension, suspense. But we know this is not customary because when Boaz wakes up after half the night is over and he finds a woman at his feet, he's seriously alarmed. He's terrified. Who are you? I don't remember this which opens the door to Ruth's gentle challenge. This wasn't in the script Naomi gave her, by the way, but she seems to understand the, the goal. She says, I am Ruth, your maidservant, and you will spread your garment over me. It's usually translated like an imperative, like a request, spread your garment over me. It's, it's actually more of a you will. 
Like, remember me? I'm the one you invited to act as a member of your household. I'm at your service. But the key is a bit of wordplay that's easy to miss because wing, like to take refuge under the wings, and extremity of the garment, like this edge, are the same word in Hebrew. So it's like her saying, do you remember when you praised me for taking refuge under the wing of the God of Israel? Um, You get to be a part of that. You could be part of the answer. In fact, you are in a unique position to act justly toward me because you are a goel to me. A little bit of a challenge to his manhood. Like, here are two destitute widows, not just in your community, but in your extended family. What will you do about it? How will Boaz respond to this bold declaration request? What might a virtuous respected man in his community do when a woman literally deliberately catches him in a compromising position. If he follows the Billy Graham rule, this might not end well for Ruth. And for that matter, in his head, there might be going on, okay, what do you do when the law seems to say, do not marry a Moabite no matter what, full stop. And here's a Moabite woman who's more righteous than anyone you've known asking you to marry her. That's a penential conundrum. So here's what Boaz says. He says, blessed. Blessed are you of Yahweh. Boaz's reflex in a critical moment is to align himself with the chesed of Yahweh and to take the generous approach. He interprets her actions again in the best light. He says that This request is evidence of her kindness, that's chesed, her faithfulness, because she could have found personal satisfaction with any of the young men, but she's chosen a route which assures her and Naomi's well-being, keeps them together so that she can keep that covenant she made, and fulfills the law. And she's done all this at some cost and no little risk to herself. Now, on Boaz's part, oh, i got to tell you this part. He says she is, and that everyone else knows that she is, an eshet hayil. That's a woman of strength or a woman of valor to go with a gibor hayil. Right? It's about the highest praise you can give. It's the Proverbs 31 woman, a, a wife, a virtuous wife, it says often. It's an eshet hayil, a warrior woman. Everyone knows you are an Eshet Hayil. You have to hand it to Ruth. She has gumption. Now, on his part, he wants everything fair and square. But there is a complication. As it turns out, there is one who is a still closer relative, which, of course, we haven't heard of yet, because this story only doles out what you need to know in little bits and pieces. There's a closer relative who has the right to redeem. But if he does not want to Gaal, to redeem Ruth, then yes, Boaz will do it. And then to demonstrate his goodwill before she goes home, he says, hold out your garment. And he has her hold out her mantle and and fill it up with six measures, whatever that is, of barley. So she goes home, weighted down. It seems to be as much as she can hold. Weighted down with his seed. (laughs) That's a little hint of what's to come. I'm not kidding, it's in there. (laughs) 
Now Naomi says to Ruth, good, sit and see what will happen. Stay, remain, see. And Boaz goes into action. So from this mysterious private midnight encounter, the story moves back into the public square, the very public square. He goes to the city gate where you transact business. And he gathers up a bunch of elders as witnesses. And he finds the closer relative. And the conversation goes something like this, and I paraphrase freely. Hey, I have some business with you. You know Naomi, who came back from Moab. She has to sell her land. Well, I thought I'd bring it to your attention, because you know, you're the closest relative, and you have the right to redeem it. Would you like to do that? And the guy says, oh, yeah, sure. Sounds good to me. Oh, good. Now, you know that on the day you buy the land, you also get to marry Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the dead man, so that his name will stay attached to the land. Ooh, no, can't do that. That will endanger my inheritance. Okay, uh, tell you what, you redeem it. I can't do it. And then the narrator helpfully adds, now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Okay, the law actually says that if someone fails to redeem his brother's widow, you should take his sandal off and spit in his face. But Ruth is a gentle book. It's gentle. See, there's a cost to exercising that right and duty. And this other fellow is just not up to it. He gets off pretty easy here. There's no spitting in the face business. But the narrative does have some fun at his expense. See, when Boaz calls him over, what he calls him is Polonial Moni, which is basically, hey, you, Mr. So-and-so. The story refuses to even name him. So the guy who's so worried for his own legacy, his inheritance, his children, how he'll be remembered, he gets his very name erased from the narrative. He's just Mr. Such-and-such. He misses out on that opportunity to be part of the blessing. So, of course, Boaz tells all the witnesses, then I redeem. I take Ruth the Moabitess to be my wife. And then comes the second time in the story that there is said to be a direct action of God. The first was when Naomi heard that God had visited his people in Bethlehem to give them bread, to give them food again. The second is that the Lord enabled Ruth to conceive. You have to remember that this was not a given. The whole story is fraught with this hope of it, but you know what? She'd been married before for possibly quite some time without bearing any children. That's not a good mark in this time and place. But we've seen, he here, how this balances so that God is working both through the righteousness of others and directly through his sovereignty to bring about good for her. And so finally, other characters wrap up the story for us. The witnesses in the gate say, may your house be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And now we see why that's not a random choice of scriptures for them to cite. And the women around Naomi say, blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer, a goel, this day. And they draw her attention to your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who has borne this child who has been better to you than seven sons. It's a little gentle rebuke. Naomi, do you remember when you couldn't see 
the light for your bitterness and despair. Even in that moment, the love of your daughter-in-law, this unexpected person with very little you know, claim, you had very little claim on, was to become to you something better than sons. And finally, the punchline. Ruth's child, Obed, is the father of Jesse, who's the father of David the king. And then we get this triumphant little genealogy linking it all the way from Judah and Perez through Boaz and Ruth to David. So not only does a Moabitess get gathered into the people of God, but she gets to become the great-grandmother of Israel's greatest king, the one who in the fullness of time leads straight to Messiah. Mr. Polonial Moni missed out on getting to be a part of that grand story of redemption. But Boaz and Ruth, like Judah and Tamar, will appear again at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew in the genealogy leading to Christ, what Francine Rivers calls a lineage of grace. So do you see the threads of God's mercy and his faithful love that brings us home? In the book of Ruth, God's love works subtly and hidden and sometimes almost undetectable ways. The characters get to tell their story of how God is working, and then sometimes they get it wrong. But the end of the matter proves that God was acting all along. This chesed love is persistent and unlimited, and no one is too far from the circle for God to redeem. And it works both directly and through the actions, again, even the ill-advised actions, <clears throat> Naomi, of human actors. If you were to tell your story, like that song we do when the Wilsons are leading, if I told you my story, you would hear life, you would hear victory. If you were to tell your story, where in it would you see this gentle, persistent, hidden, unstoppable faithfulness of God? And in the place where you are right now, perhaps if you find yourself in that tough spot, overwhelmed by loss, can you grasp that courage to believe that God is still good? It's not necessarily an easy thing. Or maybe if, like Ruth, you're just still searching out what to believe in. Have you put your weight on the goodness you've found so far? And are you willing to take a risk to find more? Perhaps you've walked with God for a while. Do you know him as the one who rescues and redeems? So there's even more to the story that I think it's fair to say than what we have yet said. This little condensed gem of a narrative from the Hebrew scriptures comes to us here through our tradition as followers of Jesus. And that means it's entirely appropriate for us to say, besides just what it shows us of God to that place in time, how does this point to our Messiah, Jesus, and how can it help us understand God's ultimate act of redemption? There's a lot of pictures given to us in the Bible for how to understand the gospel, what Jesus does for us. But with our Ruth glasses on, we'll see that we serve a God whose most powerful demonstration of mercy to us was to draw near to us like a kinsman, a brother, in fact, actually becoming like one of us, understanding that hardship that we walk through, understanding the grief, walking alongside. 
Jesus is like a goel who rescues at cost to himself those who are perishing. We were always intended to be God's own possession. But when we're fallen away from that, however far and by whatever means, and we're captive to our own greedy selves, we stand in need of rescue. That's what Paul is talking about when we read from Romans. And he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So one of the ways we can see what Jesus does is that at the cost of his lifeblood, he reestablishes God's claim on every human person. He's prepared to spread his wing of protection and blessing and safety over anyone who will ask it of him. That's what Paul means when he says that this righteousness of God has to be received in faith. As we place our faith in that protection, we get to participate in the faith of Jesus, his faithfulness, the faithfulness that's obedient to the Father, the faithfulness that sticks with us, the faithfulness that he's still, as resurrected king, leading and guiding our lives, that covenant-keeping love. Both we get to be wrapped in it, and then in turn, we get to become the kind of people who keep hesed with those around us. We stick, we love, we stay. There's an epidemic of not staying in our culture today. Only in this sense, I want to see that it's a, say it's appropriate to take Ruth as a type of model or example. Yes, yeah, I said at the beginning you couldn't do that, but watch. Ruth is the person who knows that she wants to be taken into this family. She's bold enough to ask to be redeemed. And after that encounter, you know how she goes away with as much grain as she can carry as a deposit towards the hoped-for consummation of this marriage? It's just like that when God sends his spirit to us as the seal of our adoption into his family and our eventual union with Christ. And the Gospel of Luke says all you have to do is ask because God is like a father who doesn't give you a stone when you ask for bread. If you ask for the Holy Spirit, he gives it freely. So Christ says to everyone who can ask with the boldness of a Ruth, blessed, blessed, you are hayu. You are strong even though you seem weak. You're actually brave because you've chosen well and you've come to the right place. Indeed, I am a redeemer. In fact, let me take care of the legal transactions. You are no longer empty-handed. Welcome home. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for the wideness and the extent of your mercy, for your intervention to save and redeem and heal in our lives both now and situations we face on the ground and in bringing us home to your love eternally. Give us the courage to see you for what you are through all the cloud of distractions, of hardships, of griefs that might beset us. We place ourselves under your protection, and we ask you to be our Redeemer. Amen.